Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome back. If you haven't heard from me in quite a while, it's because you probably listen to the podcast through Apple. And unfortunately, I made a mistake about six weeks ago now. I moved the podcast over to a different podcasting host. And when I did it, I did not do the correct administration required to update Apple on the new podcast feed. So basically, you've seen that it went to episode 54 and then just stopped. And then suddenly, four or five days ago, boom, four four dropped in your lap. So um, it was kind of demoralizing for me, I've got to say, because from my point of view, what happened is that normally we get about a thousand people listening to the podcast each episode in the first week that they're released. Suddenly that went down to like 200, 250. So I was questioning my life choices, wondering if I got cancelled. But no, as always, it's just the devil is in the details. So we're all back now. Everything's uh, tracking along. We are on F. F is for flat earth. I'm going to talk about that uh, today. I got to tell you, it was probably one of the hardest podcasts I've had to um, record. And that was purely because I ended up trying to assert the case of why the world is a globe. In the, in the early recordings that I did for this, I was laying out the arguments on either side and then trying to um, create a logical argument like in the in the intent perhaps in my head of like proving it to someone who was listening who thought the world was flat and then I had a bit of a revelatory moment where I realized most of the people listening to this podcast do not think the world is flat Chris what are you doing so I just decided to record a different version of it which is what we've got here where I just start out with the why it's wrong right from the start so um, I think it is important to recognize that uh, the people who believe in flat earth, of which there are literally millions, do do a little bit of research yourself. At the moment, uh, it looks like about 1% of the American population believes the earth is flat. Um, and there's quite a large percentage of people, like 16%, who are unsure. Um, 1% of the U.S. population is 3.8 million people. By the time you're talking about numbers which are over 10% of the American population, you're up above the population of Canada. So a larger percentage of the American population than the number of people who live in Canada are under some uh, doubts about what shape the world is. Now, I, I don't seek in any way to ever ridicule anybody for their beliefs. They have come to that conclusion through the information they've received and through the way that they have processed that, that, processed that given their background. So the thing to do is to try and give clear and absolute examples the ones which I'm going to share with you in this podcast are ones which I haven't really heard on other channels. Um, they've talked a lot about the you know the mechanics of how the world works and things are observable. Uh, a lot of people on YouTube showing how to debunk some of the flat earth experiments that seem to show that there is no dip, that there is uh, no, no curvature to the horizon. But from the point of view of being sailors, like we have access to this huge number of examples in our everyday lives on the water, which clearly underline the fact that um, the world is indeed a globe. So we'll get into that in just a little while. I wanted to share with you also at the beginning here that I started another podcast. It's called Rare Nautical Reads. You can find it through any normal uh, app. I will make sure that <laughs> all the correct admin is done so you can hear it on uh, Apple as well. But um, that now has got um, the Slocum story, which was here on the podcast. I've cut off the narration, which I did for it, and just turned it into kind of like a serialized audio book. And the intention is to do that more and more. So let me just tell you how that's come about. 
I was very, very honoured to um, have the library of the late Rudy Hussey bequeathed to me um, about four months ago now. It's a library of literally thousands of books. Many of them relate to Rudy's work as a marine architect and boat builder. Um, Rudy was a, a very much loved member of the um, community here in Nova Scotia, a brilliant philanthropist, a real positive uh, source of energy for people in all sorts of walks of life, but particularly the marine industry. And um, his uh, his library has got elements in it, which we're actually going to have somebody come from the Atlantic um, Atlantic Canadian Maritime Museum to assess things and just make sure there's nothing here that shouldn't be, um, you know, kept in a more official uh, repository. But um, the books primarily that we've got are all sailing non-fiction and uh, that is something which I, I had a period between about 21 and 31 where I literally read only sailing non-fiction for 10 years and I read a lot and uh, I thought I'd read them all and I can tell you I haven't and that means quite likely you haven't so what I thought to do um, to honor Rudy's memory and all the effort that he put into bringing this wonderful library together is that I would share them here on the podcast so or on rather on the Rare Nautical Reads podcast so I kicked it off with a book that you probably haven't heard of called Desperate Voyage by a chap called John Caldwell. It was published in 1949. And just to give you a taster, it's a fantastic uh, personal account of John's voyage across the Pacific just after the Second World War. He was a merchant seaman, but found himself basically kind of marooned in the US and could not get a ship to get taken back to Sydney to the woman he'd just married to Mary. And so he elected to buy a 29-foot little sloop and to set off 8,500 miles across the Pacific to sail his way back to Australia. He only had one problem. He didn't know how to sail. And uh, i got to tell you, I have never read anything like this in my life. Just to give you a quick uh, idea, I was just reading a couple of the chapters last night as I was laying down the... Uh, the, uh, the, the tracks for this new um, podcast and uh, he ends up deciding that there's a there's a shark alongside the boat right the shark is kind of rubbing itself against the bottom of the boat which they do um, he's worried that it's going to damage the boat so he decides he's going to kill the shark he's going to fish for shark he's going to kill the shark this is what he's going to do now I think already we might think if you're in a 29 foot little wooden sloop in the middle of the Pacific it's probably not a good idea to anger you know a thousand pound um, predator that's alongside the boat but he goes for it and he uh, and he jabs away with a knife uh, tied to a, an oar and the, the beasts in the end stops moving and uh, he decides to use a halyard to haul it up onto the boat he's got the front of the shark in the cockpit he's got the back of the shark hanging off the transom and that's the exact moment that it comes back to life or recovers its senses or whatever was going on and through its thrashing basically destroys the back deck of the boat, the cockpit, the cockpit sole, the engine beneath the cockpit, the bulkhead, the sliding companionway hatch, the companionway doors. This thing is wrecking the boat and he has to kind of just go mental on it to, to, to kill it so that it will stop it from destroying the boat in the middle of the Pacific. It's just, it's, it's, it's beyond anything. It's not Eric Hitzcock. So if you fancy listening to something like that, Rare Nautical Reads is for you. But for today, it's going to be F is for Flat Earth. Let's see what I was able to make of this for you. Well, I'll share with you first that this has been the most difficult podcast for me to, uh, to edit and for me to produce. It's just one of those things that 
I thought it'd be kind of fun and I thought it would be kind of uh, interesting to to get into this topic area. But the more you dig through the information, the more you realize it's just a complete mire, which you're never going to uh, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. It's a swamp. So what can I hope to achieve in this sphere? Well, I'm going to keep things very tight and very on track, unlike the other versions of this I've recorded this afternoon, which end up being kind of like a rant in opposition to other rants. My rant says the world is a globe and other people's rants say the earth is flat. I'm going to keep it very sharply based in my experience. The whole point of this ABC series on sailing is looking at like, what do I know? What does a professional sailor know like off the top of their head? So I do know quite a bit about flat earth movement because I've been interested in it from a personal aspect away from the podcast for many years. But um, what do I have to say to somebody who thinks the earth is flat is I think where I should keep this. And that stops me from diversifying off into all the other kind of slightly more crazy aspects of this. So how long have we thought the world was a globe is a good place to start. We're just going to skim through it very quickly. Basically, since the third century BC. Okay, is that quick enough? So about 2300 years ago, uh, Plato comes up with some pretty basic um, bits of evidence that prove certainly to the community at that time that the world was flat. The Hellenistic tradition starts to promote the idea that we are on a globe and we don't really turn back. We don't turn back at all. Um, there's there's no ongoing part of the culture, uh, unless it's religiously based, that thinks that there is science behind the idea of the world being flat. From a period before science, there's definitely a feeling that it's flat because that's what our eyes allow us to see. But certainly, as soon as people start to apply any kind of mathematics to any, any kind of rigorous observation, the idea that the world is flat very soon dries up. It resurfaces in the 1850s and it resurfaces when a guy who goes under the pen name of uh, Parallax, pretty good, pretty good name, um, his name is Robottom, he starts to put around um, documents, a pamphlet called um, Zeptetic uh, Astronomy, which is intended to, it's intended essentially to bolster the case that the Bible was correct. And I think that's the thing I want to just focus on a little bit with, uh, with this chat Robottom. The era that he was putting that publication out into was one which had already been rocked by the realization that the planet was a lot older than they thought it was. Until, you know, the end of the the 1700s, early 1800s, basically people were taking what was in the Bible quite literally and they were thinking that the world was 6,600 years old when Jesus was born and then you just add on a couple of thousand years and you've got the age of the planet. So everybody believed within that sphere that... Um, the planet was less than 10,000 years old. Then you had research going on based around the Niagara River and based around the fact that the Niagara River has dug this massive canyon um, in which it now sits, the river now sits. Um, and that uh, started to give people an idea that uh, the planet might be a lot older than they thought. They looked at the hardness of the rocks. They looked at the amount of water going over the waterfall. They looked at how fast that amount of water could erode this amount of rock. And by taking measurements, they were able to understand that the river had indeed dug the gorge, but it had dug it over millions, not thousands of years. Now, at that point, um, 
You've also got people like Charles Darwin, who was then putting out, uh, he had this idea from having gone to the Galapagos on the Beagle that, you know, maybe animals could change over time, that certain genetic mutations would give them certain advantages and that those advantages could then be used to move that creature uh, up in the uh, efficiency of what it was attempting to do. It's an ability to hide, it's ability to hunt, it's ability to um, produce offspring. They would get some um, bias uh, towards its genetic mutation that would then make it the dominant form of that species. This is the beginning of the theory of evolution and natural selection. So suddenly the world is millions of years old instead of thousands and potentially we have evolved from animals rather than just being created alongside animals. So there's a lot of disturbance in the world at that time. And if you're a religious person and you believed in the, the, the word and chapter of the Bible, then you've got some big problems coming. You've got some real kind of um, existential threats that you need to fend off. One of the underlying principles of the Bible was that the world essentially is a flat plane with a firmament over top and that um, literally like windows are opened and water comes in that's how rain comes and uh, god is above the firmament and there was a lot of imagery and a lot of um, security in this feeling of what the world was suddenly it's all gone and parallax decides that he's gonna um, kind of put the cat amongst the pigeons with this uh, pamphlet which describes the fact that the wool is being pulled over everybody's eyes and that we are in fact uh, living on a flat plane so how do you start to get into this? I think the concern is, for me, is that, um, you know, I guess you want to kind of like win, don't you? In an argument like this, if someone comes to you in the bar and says, oh, the earth is flat, you're full of crap, that you go off sailing across these oceans, it's not possible, or blah, blah, blah. There's a, there's a feeling there that you like, you want to win. I don't particularly want to win the debate of the flat earth uh, versus the globe. It, it's not for me to do that. Um, I'm not a scientist or astronomer or, or physicist or a mathematician. So I don't have like clever things that I can point at and say, oh, this proves this, whatever. What I have is I have what you have. I have the fact that I'm a sailor and I'm interested in things that are around the sailing sphere. I'm aware of the way things kind of basically work in the maritime world. And I have the evidence of my own eyes. So what I'm going to present here is things that well, I don't actually see these things presented in the YouTube videos, which I've gone through a zillion times before, looking at people trying to disprove flat earth. Flat earthers have a number of kind of um, things they come back to time and time again. And actually a lot of it is based literally on the bits of experimentation that Robottom did in the 1850s. One of them is the fact that you can take a very long flat like drainage ditch that's what he had or a canal or something like that and you can put markers on it and according to very basic calculations of dip i.e like how far the horizon is dipping away from you as things roll over the horizon out of sight like a ship's dipping behind the horizon or a lighthouse or land is dipping behind these tables of dip give figures if used inappropriately which would make it seem that over the kind of amount of distance that you're able to uh, view with binoculars on a drainage ditch, you know, down like in the countryside around you, that you'd be able to see dip at that kind of uh, range. Those calculations don't bring into any kind of focus the fact that there's atmospheric effects which also need to be borne in mind 
when making observations in this field. What we seem to have is a lot of people who are willing to like engage in scientific pursuit to prove their point, but they will not accept any of the proven points from other people's scientific pursuit, and they will not recognize their standing like in the scientific process. If your day-to-day -day job is doing X, Y, and Z, and you have an idea at the weekend to go out and prove that the Earth's not round, you are then going toe-to-toe -to -toe with people who've spent literally decades in school and in research and publishing papers and being um, you know, referenced and peer-reviewed and all the, reference, all the rest of that stuff, which adds up to having serious credibility in your chosen field. Um, what would it be tantamount? It'd be like going on an aeroplane with no knowledge of how to fly an aeroplane and then watching a couple of videos, reading a couple of books, and then telling the pilot he's doing it all wrong and attempting to wrest control from the pilot. It's What is happening here is that you've got that Dunning-Kruger thing going on where you don't realize how much you don't know. And that's okay. We don't have to get like kind of all up in people's uh, situation to uh, to understand what's going on. We don't have to get in their face and get uh, tribalistic about it. But clearly that's the mechanism which would be in play where somebody who is like part-time amateur uh, tea-making scientist on the side and does another job is then attempting to overrule, um, you know, literally getting into like thousands of years of accepted human uh, uh, science. So... I don't want to get caught up in that too much. Just even starting to talk like that reminds me of the three or four other times that I've tried to record this podcast has all gone horribly wrong. I'm going to stick to what I know because that's what the ABC is about. What do I know? I know this. I know that if you do celestial navigation, um, it is based on uh, spherical trigonometry. The difference between planar and spherical trigonometry is that on a flat plane, the angles inside of a triangle must add up to 180 degrees. They cannot exceed 180 degrees. But if you take a globe and you draw a triangle on it, it can actually have angles which add up to more than 180 degrees. You could actually make a triangle on a sphere which has got uh, all of the elements that a triangle needs to be and it has the three right angles at the corners. If you were to do that, um, inside of a astronav uh, calculation, it would work and give you the position. If you were to attempt to mix up planar and spherical trigonometry, it would not work. It would not work. You would not be able to overlay spherical trigonometry onto a flat plane, nor would you be able to take flat plane trigonometry and use it in a uh, in, on a spherical surface. So the 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 reality that ships have for let's say a thousand years got from a to b you know pretty reliably at the beginning clearly as we've just done recently when we did ease for uh, estimated position error obviously to begin with it was a lot of like um sailing by eye and by the lead and by you know local knowledge and bits of charts and the sun here and it was all getting a bit you know getting more and more complicated as they went along but it's still a long way from what we recognize as navigation but within that process of the last thousand years by the time you get to like oh, 1400s 1500s around there people are doing like serious mathematics on board ship to find positions of the boat they're doing the actual mathematics which underlines the logarithmic tables that we now use to do um 
you know, astro nav on a boat. And obviously all of that is completely behind the scenes when we do anything with a computer where it just spews out an answer. And GPS is, well, even further removed, right? We're not even engaged in the process. We're just following the lines and following the dots on the chart. So if we go right back down to the mathematics that underlie our technology today, it is based on mathematical principles which cannot be argued. The latitude and longitude uh, scale around the world, the, the overlaying grid, that was dreamt up a very long time ago. And we yes, we had a problem with longitude. We couldn't calculate longitude very much. We knew that one hour around the world is about 15 degrees of drift as the planet turned. and But we needed uh, uh, an accurate timepiece to be able to do it. Finally, we got that when John Harrison created a, a clock that we could take to see and reference Greenwich Mean Time with local mean time, but or, sorry, Greenwich Midday and, and local midday. But um, there was not, there was never a doubt that the mechanism that we were using to make these uh, calculations was incorrect, and there's no evidence to show it. So if a ship, um, let's say when they were still doing astronav on ships, let's not say electronic nav now, but let's say the 19, <clears throat> 1930s, 1940s, if there was a ship going from A to B and it found B, it found B because of spherical trigonometry. If a plane is going over a, you know, a country and it's trying to find a city to bomb or something in the Second World War, it's doing it with astro-nav and it's doing it with spherical trigonometry. And the fact that they found their targets, the fact that they found their way back to their bases and wherever they came from, whatever they were doing, the fact that they can navigate between two places on this sphere is because they were using spherical trigonometry. So there's no doubt about that. The next thing, which is like beyond doubt, I see a lot of videos on YouTube where people are still trying to prove something, which again, Parallax Robottom was talking about in the 1850s. He was saying that things do not go like down below the horizon, you know, dip as we would call it, they're going behind the curvature of the planet. He said that they just kind of like went out of sight. They were just so far away that you couldn't see them. But if you had the mechanism that you could then draw them back into clarity. Well, obviously a lot of YouTubers have got access to some pretty high powered cameras with mega zoom on them. And those mega zoom cameras allow them to take like a little fishing boat or something that's just gone out of sight. And then they're able to zoom right in on it and bring it back into clarity. And they use that as proof of the fact that, oh, look, you know, the world is flat. It didn't disappear over the horizon. My cameras just brought it back into, into view. Now I can see how seeing it for your own eyes and not understanding what's going on would lead you to a certain number of conclusions. You see a fishing boat, the fishing boat disappears from sight, you then put your camera on it and you bring it back into clarity and you go, well, there we go, That's I've proven something. I have seen literally tens of thousands, let's say tens of thousands of ships come over the horizon and they do not go from like small to big. They go from out of sight, like 15 miles away, you'll maybe get a funnel or a nav light or a bit of smoke or the tops of the bridge or something like that. And then about 12 miles, you get the bridge. You normally, they normally white the bridges. The bridge shows up and you get the gantries on deck and maybe the forward mast and stuff, more nav lights showing now. And then you start to get the top of the hull and then you get, oh, now the full hull is up over the horizon. And then finally you can see like the water line and the thing is then quite close by. That is how ships appear 
thousands of times to me in my working life. There's no doubt that that's what happens. And I know for a fact that if you were to see a ship going further and further away from you and it's now hulled down, I, you can just see the things on deck, the bridge, the mast, that kind of stuff. If you zoom in on it, the hull does not come back into view. You do not like cheat the system and get the hull back. It is not in sight. You can now pick up more detail on the bridge with your magnification, but you can't see more of the ship. I, I know that as a fact that I see every day. And I'm more than happy to take someone who's confused about that out onto the ocean and show them. You go to www.spartanoceanracing.com, you pay your money, and you come and learn that the world is round, okay? So those two things, like, pretty pretty factual for me. I, I think I have a very supportive attitude to anybody who's got a counterpoint and to a, an alternate point of view. Um, when people start defending their point of view by then accusing those who would debunk them by saying that you're in on the conspiracy, you're a government shill, all this kind of nonsense that we hear, I just kind of tune out. And that's why I think that the previous recordings of this podcast end in just kind of like ranting on and on about it. Um, if I can keep it a little bit cleaner, I think I can do a better job of just giving you arguments that, that kind of pull this apart. So number one, spherical trigonometry and the history of maritime commerce. Number two, uh, ship's do definitely go hull down. There's no doubt they are going around the back of the horizon. They are not uh, just getting smaller and smaller and further and further away. Um, I've got some beautiful new Steiner binoculars. Thank you very much to Steiner for sponsoring me those binoculars. They are absolutely awesome. And I can tell you for a fact, <laughs> having used uh, these kind of binoculars for a long time, um, when ships are getting out of sight and then you Put your binoculars on them you don't get the hull back you just get to see what's still in sight a little bit more um what else have we got well, let's have a look at something like the vendee globe so um the vendee globe as we know is a round the world yacht race which starts in uh Sabdelon in in the vendee province of france it comes out from france through the bay of biscay down through the atlantic it then takes a big left turn and goes uh, around the bottom of cape town and cape uh, of good hope it then goes across the bottom of the indian ocean under Australia, under New Zealand, over to Cape Horn at the bottom of South America. It takes another left turn, goes back up the Atlantic, crosses the equator, and then heads back into Saab de Lon. It's been running now for 30 years. We have a lot of data that's come back from it. We know exactly how long the boats are when they set off. We know exactly what the speed characteristics of those boats are. If a boat is operating in displacement mode, then the maximum speed that it can do is 1.32 times the square root of the waterline length uh, in feet and that will give you the speed in knots so if you've got an eight, a 40 foot boat you can do about eight knots if you've got a 60 foot boat then you can do about 11 knots if you've got an 85 foot boat you can do about 12 knots now of course these boats can get up on the plane and they can go very much faster than that but again the effects of friction of induced drag uh, hydrodynamic and aerodynamic um, effects on the boat limit its performance to a particular envelope. We can push that envelope out if we can get it up onto hydrofoils. We can push that envelope out if we can go into a multi-hull configuration. So we know that boats can go at very, very high speeds. You know, the big foiling trimarans can sit an average 25, 26, 27 knots. They can average that over 24 hours. But a monohull, 60 foot long, is going to average, well, what's the most at the moment? Let me see. I've done 
368 in a day solo on an open 60. Um, the boat that I've got now, Falcon, she can do, or she has done maximum 438. She held the 24-hour distance record in the year 2000 with a run of 438 miles in a day. And the record today, Alex Thompson's record, I think is 538, 530, 530 something. So a monohole uh, open 60, we know like how fast it can go. And if you're doing the fastest I've ever gone in well, any boat, but it was in an open 60 is 33 and a half knots, 33 and a half knots in a surf. And it was momentary. The most I've averaged uh, is, is probably in that 16, 17 knot bracket, which gave me that 368 overall. So we, we know the performance. So let's take what we know. The Vonda Globe sets off and goes around the world. Now, we could say they don't go around the world. That would be a possible way of dealing with the problem I'm about to bring up. That if you're in a point where you're saying, well, they don't go around the world, then we're kind of drifting into the crazy zone where um, you're so desperate to win the conversation that you're not listening to reason. These boats are tracked. They are observed when they go past southerly points. They are intersected with uh, other ships at sea that can show their position, that can film them as they go past. There's loads of competitors. There's millions of audience members. And there's people from all sorts of hard skills and sciences that follow this that would easily be able to see if there's a problem. Unless you're saying all those people are in on the con, in which case I can't really help. Let's have a look at the flat earth model. So it looks like the, the NATO symbol. It's a nomic projection essentially from the North Pole. North Pole's in the center. Um, Sweden, Norway, the top of um, Canada and America, Russia, they're all closest to the, the center point of the world. And the farthest flung points from the center of the world on the flat earth model would be the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Lewin and Cape Horn, right? Now there is a fun a little trick or whatever you want to call it that you can do in the pub where you say to someone what's bigger the circumference on the top of my pint glass or the distance up the side of the glass from the table to the top of the glass and many people would say oh well the the distance from the table up to the the rim of the glass is longer and you can very easily prove it with a little piece of string or something you just get out you know shoestring or something like that and show hey here's the length up the side of the glass here's the circumference and that's when you win a beer because the circumference is way bigger a lot of people do not have a feeling for how much bigger circumferences are than than straight lines when you're dealing with circles radius and circumference have a relationship through pi we know that they're one is way bigger than the other so if you're dealing with the uh, Vendée globe operating on a spherical model of the world it comes out from a position which is about 45 degrees above the center line, the equator of your sphere. It runs down and then it goes round the bottom of the sphere. Um, the Vendée globe can't go lower than 60 degrees south. It runs down through the Southern Ocean and then it loops back up back to its starting point. The rules for doing a circumnavigation are that it must be no less than 21,800 miles, that it must cross its outbound track, that it must cross every line of longitude and that it must um, start and finish from the same position if you're doing a race and a small proportion of that must be the northern hemisphere they literally are the rules for doing a circumnavigation record or for doing the vendee globe and most of the boats that come back having done the vendee globe will come back having recorded distances of about 27,000 miles the issue is that if the vendee globe does set off and the boats do do the distance and we were looking at it on a um, flat earth model they would have to come out from the center of the flat earth models plane the pizza plane the pizza that is the world now 
um, you've got to come out from the center of the world and get to the outer edge and then you have to circumnavigate the edge of that circumference of the world so let's add a few numbers in here and we'll keep it super basic because you're listening and i'm rubbish at math so um from the center point of the flat earth uh map out to the equator which is uh you know i don't think they're arguing that there's a place called the equator you'd have to go 90 degrees from from the zero point of the pole to the equator is 90 degrees and we know that there's 60 miles in a degree so 60 times 90 you get a value of 5400 miles okay so the amount of distance you have to sail in a straight line from the pole to the equator would be 5400 miles now uh, Sabdalon is not that far up. It's only 45 degrees, give or take. I'm keep, trying to keep everything very basic here. It's 45 degrees. So we got four, half of that, basically 5,400 divided by two is going to give us 2,700. Even I can work that out. So it's 2,700 miles. We're going to keep that off to one side. Now, how far south is Cape Town? It's about 40 degrees south. So now we need to do 40 times 60, 60 miles um, is in, in, a, in a degree and uh, there's 40 degrees between the equator and Cape Town so we've got 2,400 so we've got a value of 2,400 miles from the equator to Cape Town and another value of 2,700 miles from the approximate latitude of uh, Sabdalon to the equator we add those two together and we've got ourselves 5,100 miles so far so good right this is not very complicated maths this is in straight lines we're looking at how far is it from a to b now if we go from the top of the world from the point in the center of the flat earth from the north pole whatever that's in the center at the top however you look at it and we run all the way down to cape town and then we draw a ring around the world we can work out what would be the circumference of the circle as defined by the flat earth model right so we then have to take a value of 7,800 miles that's um, 5,400 from the North Pole to the equator plus 2,400 from the equator down to Cape Town put those two together you got 7,800 and then well let's ask Google that's I won't do it let me just uh, do hey Google what's the circumference of a circle with a radius of 7,800 Okay, so 49,000. So we didn't have to give him the units because he's not fussed about the units because it's that easy to work out. Circumferences, they are 2 times pi times r. So now we've got some, we've got some values here. So we've got a radius, which we've calculated to be 7,800 miles, and a circumference, which is going to be 49,000 miles. Okay, now we're not sailing that entire radius because we're only going from France down to Cape Town, and we worked out that that's about 5,100 miles. So we've got 5,100 miles, and then you have to go back up the Atlantic at the end, another 5,100 miles. Let's call it 10,000 just to keep things round. And you've got 49,000 around the world. And that's not really even working out the fact that um, Cape Horn is way further south. It's down at 56 degrees south, but we're just kind of... we're. <laughs> going to keep it at least like vaguely based in uh, something approaching like reality here. So we've got a circumference. We have to go around the outside of the flat earth of 49,000 plus up and down the Atlantic gives us 10,000. So we've got 59,000 miles that we've got to do. Now, these boats come back on average these days between 
80 and 90 days. Let's say 90 days, okay? Um, in fact, why don't we why don't say 100 days is going to make it super easy what happens next. So 100 days, and that means there's 24 hours in a day, and we're looking for speed. So we can say 100 days times 24, it's going to be 2400. If you sail around the world in 100 days, then you spent 2400 hours sailing around the world. All good so far? And if you sail from France down to Cape Town and then go round the world on the flat earth, we've just calculated that it's going to make about 59,000 miles. So let's ask Google again because he's, uh, he, you know, Google, you don't ask Google for everything, but you can do math through Google. Hey, Google, what's uh, 59,000 divided by what was the number again? 2,400. The answer is approximately 24.583333. Okay, good. All right, so 24, did he say? 20, 24. We'd have to average around the world 24 knots in our 60-foot boat. I got to tell you, there's a lot of racers who would really love to be able to average in a 60-foot boat 24 knots around the world. And just for completeness, let's just see how that works out with uh, the figures that actually come back from the Vendée Globe, which is normally about 27,000 miles by the time everyone's beat up and down the uh, uh, the Atlantic or uh, you know had to go off course for to find other weather patterns. So 27,000 miles uh, in 100 days, what would that be? Hey Google, what's 27,000 divided by 2,400? 11.25 for boats whose hull speed is pretty much exactly that and they're sometimes becalmed they're sometimes in light airs they're sometimes able to far exceed their hull speed by by surfing um, we suddenly have a number of 27,000 miles completed in 100 days at 11 knots I think I smell the truth I hope that with some very basic maths here you're starting to get a feel for the fact that there would have to be like this massive conspiracy going on for the flat earth model to be correct. You know, sailing is something that we do. So we understand like kind of the basic concepts of how fast a boat can go through the water. But look at a lot more mainstream kind of uh, version of this. Planes regularly fly from Cape Town over to Australia. They do that because as those continents are orientated quite relatively close to each other at the bottom of the globe in the globe world, um, it is possible for a plane to do that. The maximum speed of the plane is known. The fuel loading on these planes is known. The amount of time that passengers take to get from A to B is known. And there's no there's no complication. As long as a plane doesn't have an issue in the air, it will set off at this time and it will arrive at this time. And it's not going like faster than the speed of sound. It is just making its way within the bounds of what we expect. The flat earthers, when confronted with this, recognize, I think, themselves that their model doesn't make any sense at that point if a plane had to fly between Cape Town and uh, Australia and it was going around the circumference at the outer edges of a flat earth model it's going to take it way way longer to get where it's going which they can then only describe as being that everybody involved in the entire process is in on it and part of the conspiracy or that planes can go much much faster than we've been told they can which again means then you're running hard up against uh easily observable facts that these planes are not breaking the sound barrier it's uh we we understand the operational capabilities of a boeing 747 or an airbus and breaking the sound barrier is not one of them so 
For my part, when I think about the flat earth uh, model and the, the conspiracy, I've got my little air bunnies going on here, the conspiracy of the flat earth, I have to start looking at, you know, looking at things which are relatively easy to test for yourself. And as, um, as sailors, we have a, a, an unusual opportunity to test many of these things on a, a nearly day-by-day -day basis if you get out into the ocean at all and you can look out further to see and see a ship coming towards you or going away from you you can see the dip if you are able to cross between you know somewhere like Cape Town and Rio doing a race like that or go from uh, Cape Town to Australia you know damn well that there's no way that your boat is averaging 24 knots to make a pretty simple racing passage between those two points like I would know the difference <laughs> there is literally a paddle wheel that goes around on the bottom of some of these boats to indicate the speed it's just it's not accidentally going at 24 knots and no one noticed there's not like a government conspiracy to adjust the calibration on my hull sensors to convince me that i'm doing 10 knots when i'm actually doing 24 knots it just starts to move into the the, the realm of the ridiculous so um what else can we say about the flat earth i think one of the things that comes out of this for me is the fact of uh how amazing it is to look at the fact that our ancestors started to ask this question. I think this is what this perhaps gets to at its most fundamental, that our ancestors thousands of years ago looked up at the sky and they looked at the sun and they looked at the moon and they saw the seasons coming and going and they started to think, man, I wonder what is the like ultimate shape of the thing that we're on. And at this time, of course, they didn't even know about the Americas. It was kind of like out of view for them. It was there, but they didn't really know it was there. Remember, Columbus wasn't looking to find America. He was trying to find another way to get into Asia, essentially. Um, they didn't know about Antarctica. We didn't know about Antarctica until the 1820s when the Russians first kind of uh, tripped across it. So we didn't know about huge tracts of the world. And yet they had worked out that they were on a ball. And the question, I guess, is, is could you work it out yourself? Could you come up with a proof that would be irrefutable to somebody else that proves, hey, we're on a ball here. Like, this is what's going on. You can easily understand how it might have been very difficult for people to understand that and that the idea that things were flat was much more alluring. But we rely on so much technology now. If you lie back on a, on a clear evening on the deck or on a shore, wherever you are, your house, have a look up at the night sky. If it's anything like the sky here, about 45 degrees north in Nova Scotia, the sky now is just littered with things flying around in space. All these uh, Starlink satellites and the GPS satellites and communication satellites and all the rest of it up there flying around that now literally you can watch one go past, okay, north to south, yeah, wait 25 seconds, oh, there one goes east to west, brilliant. Another 25 seconds, oh, there's one coming from the north to the south. All of these things are up there as proof of the fact that we are able to travel into space, that we are putting things into space, that we've got orbital mechanics and we've got um, certainly the basic symptoms of, uh, of mass and the fact it creates a gravity well and that we can use that gravity well to keep things nearby. We have started to work out the basics of it. Clearly, we've got lots more to learn. I think that's the exciting thing about science. It keeps moving forward. But clearly, we've got some of the basics worked out. I think what happens is that people live in a world where they don't often see the sky. A lot of cities now are completely overcast. They don't go out onto the oceans. They don't have to do critical thinking for themselves. And they are instead looking at something. And, you know, it's it's very much part of the human condition that it's exciting to know something that other people don't. That's what is the fundamental cause of a lot of 
conspiracy theories, certainly the more crazy ones where people are excited to know something. If you're, you know, a very basic human and you find another way of getting termites out of a log or, of, you know, cracking a stone into a usable shape, that's great. You've got something which has real value. If you start to find a little place online, which is an echo chamber, which keeps giving you information about the fact that um, it's very likely the world is flat and not round, that's exciting. That's a tribe to be in. That's something to keep the everyday blues away. You're now part of a group of people that see further and know more than everybody else. But if you drag it back to realities which are clearly visible to any sailor that goes out on the water, has any grip of navigation, has any awareness of how long round the world events take or how long airplanes take to get from A to B, with a little bit of very basic mathematics, you can show absolutely categorically that there's no way that the world is flat. Um, it is interesting to just kind of... It, one thing I'll get into with the mechanics of the flat earth... Um, model is that um, the, the sun and the movement of the sun is a, a great kind of complication within that model. Um, the easiest way of knowing if a model is working is that you can create predictions based on the model. We know this with weather that it's like it's pretty good. It, you know, it, it often will give you very accurate information, maybe slewed by time or slewed by wind angle or slewed by something else. But we can we can model things and get some pretty good predictions out of them. We can model the tides very well. We can model sunrise and sunset very well. We can model the onset of the seasons very well using the mechanics that we have available through the globe uh, theory. Um, it is not possible to draw any meaningful predictions from any modeling associated with the flat earth concept. It's very difficult to even get a basic mechanic from all the literature and all the videos and stuff I've seen um, of like exactly what is it you're saying? How do you define the way the sun works? You know, the sun on the globe model is, um, let's look so my my friend wakes up in paris and the sun is coming up and my friend wakes up in cape town and the sun is coming up they're at two different angles but because they're in the same position of longitude there's going to be some differences because of the angle of the the, the planets and the orientation of the planet to the sun but essentially the sun is doing the same thing for the both of those people it's to the north of the person who's in cape town and it's to the south of the person who's in Paris. Now, on a flat Earth model, what that means is that the sun's position must be on a line going around in a circle, which is a halfway between or some some nearly equilateral distance between Cape Town and Paris. And that the both of my observers, one in Paris, one in Cape Town, is looking at the sun. One's looking north, one's looking south. The problem is that the way that flat Earth model describes the position of the sun, it says, firstly, not that the sun is a million times bigger than the earth and it's 88 million miles away. It says that it's a very small object that's only about three to 5,000 miles away and that it moves around in kind of like a figure eight style. I, 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 it's a few different models of this. It's kind of tricky to understand, but none of them add up to a model that's capable of a prediction. Another thing, how can one observer in one place see the sun going down and then get on his phone to his mate who's watching it come up? That's not possible on the flat earth model. You could have to have a very directed beam of light from this very close by light source, um, which is, you know, lighting up an area where it's going dark for one person, it's lighting up for another person. And at the same time, what are the people to the north and south of that sea as it's transiting from east to west to give this 
going to sleep and you know waking up kind of uh, feel to the the world in these two observable positions north and south of that are they they're in darkness watching like the sun go by or something like you know it starts to get to a point where those who are behind the concept just keep nailing the nailing all of their hopes on a couple of mechanics which they believe will prove what's going on these uh these kind of experiments on long flat tracks of water uh, ashore or looking at ships disappearing over the horizon at sea all of which has been thoroughly debunked many times by people who know more about the science of what's going on than those who are doing the experiments so i think the dunning kruger curve is at work here we talked about that in one of the other podcasts that you can end up getting into a sphere of knowledge or or, or or of experience and then thinking that you know a lot about what's going on and what's actually happening of course is that you don't know how much you don't know i think that's something that came through in my research with the uh, a number of these conspiracy theories i think people let's say you work you know at a supermarket and you're doing your job 40 hours a week 160 hours a month and you go home you spend two or three hours a night on the internet looking at all these things to do with a particular conspiracy theory it feels to you like you're doing a lot of work to look into this particular area and indeed over time that is going to really add up but what you have to understand is the other people that are literally been doing schooling since they were like 15 or 16 years old who've been schooled by some of the finest minds in the world if they've gone on to university and MAs and PhDs and then gone on into the private sector or the public sector and continue to do this 40 or some of them 80 hours a week um, for decades. And your three hours an evening for five years just doesn't add up to the same numbers. Now, are they able to be influenced by outside sources absolutely no problem at all but can a ship's navigation be influenced by something that the government is pushing on them like some kind of other model of the world like of course it can't can the reality of how long it takes to get between a and b be affected by the mood of some unseen shadow government like no of course it can't and then when you get to the very nitty gritty of this model, which, you know, one of the details then is, OK, well, what's on the edge? What's at the edge of the big space pizza flying through space? And the answer is a giant ice wall. At that point, you have to kind of like say, OK, um, I see we're, we're drifting off now into the surreal. So um, I've, I've had friends that have gone to Antarctica. I've got friends who have worked in Antarctica. Um, you know, there's no giant ice wall. You can get on, literally on a on a ship and go there and visit it. It just costs money. You go. If you want to go and prove there's a big ice wall, there's plenty of ships will take you down there, get all the money together from the flat earth groups, and then get on a ship and go down there and see what it is um, and stop detracting from people like Shackleton and Amundsen and uh, Scott, who are heroes of mine, who went and explored that land. Uh, you're saying that basically what they did didn't didn't even exist they were all liars as well so okay i'm gonna hold myself back now i can feel <laughs> my hackles rising as i start to get a little bit more irritable about um what this would uh what it kind of like logically leads on to if you go like let's imagine for a second that we suddenly all wake up tomorrow and discover oh my god the world is flat look at all of the things that would have to be taken away from humanity that all the things that we think that we've done, all the things that we think we've learned about the world, all the things we know about physics and astronomy and geology and all that stuff, it's all lies. Every single bit of it is all lies. No, I'm not buying it. So anybody comes tacking across the bar to you with chit-chat about flat earth, 
Um, tell them to listen to this podcast. That'd be great. Like and subscribe. <laughs> or just point out to them the fact that you have seen ships dip below the horizon, that you know how long it takes around the world events to happen and know they don't average 24 knots, that the fact that all big ship uh, navigation, all navigation really for the last like 500 years relies on spherical trigonometry, not planar trigonometry. And then get yourself out of the conversation because you are literally speaking to somebody who is unable to form rationalized arguments in their head. There's so much information out there. There's so much proof that if a person is in this day and age, you know, willing to engage in open discussion about the fact that they think the world is flat, I assure you there is nothing that you can say that's going to prove it to them. But what you could do is say, hey, come sailing with me. Let's go out in the bay. Let's watch ships arrive and watch boats depart. And you can stick with stick with your binoculars and, and watch them. And then when you watch them go hull down, we'll have a discussion about what's actually happening here. So that <laughs> that is the end of the podcast about the flat earth model. And it's the end of discussing anything to do with flat earth. I thought that this one would be kind of fun. Um, it's just an absolute it's it's a briar patch. You, you you can't win because when people are arguing this kind of stuff, all they're doing is they're going to try and drag you down into the gutter. And they've got so much experience of battling down in the gutter that they'll probably beat you with experience. So um, no, don't worry about it. The world is round. There might be lots of crazy things going on in this round, round world, but it is a round, round world. We don't need to worry too much about that. So I hope that you got some uh, fun out of this, got some entertainment out of it. I got to tell you, I absolutely hated making this one because it is so hard not to just ridicule people and not to uh, result to some kind of uh, rant of your own when you get into this, when it's so blatantly obvious. But um, I will be going on the uh, the acid test for Round the Worlders. I'm going to do this Round the World thing at the end of this year. Um, it's not solo. It's nonstop. There'll be a tracker on the boat. You can all watch. If you find that I'm averaging 24 knots, then you know, A, the world is flat and B, I'm making good time. I'm going to be back. I'm going to beat the record because um, the record even going west around the world is 120 miles. And you know, if you've got 60,000 miles to cover uh, in 120 days, then 500 miles a day, every day, all the way around is uh, looking like uh, the only way to, to win that particular record. But um, I shall leave you with that. I hope that wherever you are, you are safe and sound of mind, <laughs> not believing in a flat earth. And I will speak to you in the next one. Cheers. 